This is your fortnightly instalment where I interview a trailblazing physiotherapist that has shaped the profession we are today. In celebrating their journey, knowledge and insights, you gain the opportunity to plan and guide your own professional journey. My name is Doug Kerry and welcome to Physio Plus 10. Today's guest on Physio Plus 10 is Dr. Toby Hall. Toby details his journey as a physiotherapist traveling from the UK to Australia and subsequently teaching around the world. Toby explains the challenges and benefits of undertaking clinical specialisation and how his research has influenced clinicians' ability to differentiate between headache of cervicogenic and non-cervicogenic origin. Listen closely for Toby's spinning plate method of time management and unique task prioritisation. Toby, can you explain a little bit more about why it was you decided to become a physiotherapist? Um, that's a good question. I, I was um, not sure what I wanted to do. I actually wanted to do medicine, and um, but unfortunately, I didn't do the right subject at school. I think I got a bit of bad career choice uh, advice, and um, so I, I didn't study chemistry, which was one of the requirements. But there was one university in the in the UK that allowed you to do med with uh, without doing chemistry. So I applied for that along with 400 other people and unfortunately didn't get a place. So then I was left wondering what to do. And a friend of mine was a nurse and she said, oh, have you thought about doing physio? And I didn't even know what it was. So she said, oh, why don't you go to your local physio in the health center? And uh, I went and watched this guy. He was he was a blind physio. And so it was really inspiring to see him working with patients and uh, the success that he was getting, that it persuaded me to to apply for physio. And, um, and I got a place in Sheffield in the UK. And here I am now. Some reflection, if you had have had the chance or have you ever considered to go back and do med, like you, there's lots of graduate entry master's programs you can do that. Have you ever considered to do that? I have thought about doing it in the past, but um, I, I never really thought that I was uh, of sufficient standard to, to be able to do that. On hindsight now, I could have, could have done it with, without any problems at all. But at the time, you think, oh, well, maybe I'm, I'm not up to that because of um, my, you know, my choices at school and things like that. So, um, so I didn't go into it. But I'm pretty happy that I, I didn't do it. I mean, they're quite different professions, really. We're t- quite quite different in many ways although I think our profession is moving towards medicine in, in some ways you know if you think about extended scope practitioners and specialization everyone wants to start to stick needles into people and <laughs> prescribe drugs and do all sorts of blood tests and do all sorts of imaging so I, I think there's a lot of physios out there who want to be uh, to be doctors but um, maybe that's uh, something that's not suited for for physiotherapy that's a, it's a good it's a separate discussion Yeah, I I think quite a lot of people on this podcast have intimated that at some point they had considered medicine as a career choice. And I, I, I would put myself in that same category as well. But looking back on it, I sort of, I'm like you saying, very happy with the decision. There's lots of complexity. There's lots of um, opportunities within the profession of physio. And that's part of this podcast is to, you know, demonstrate to perhaps younger physios the diversity of things that they can get involved in with the profession. You know, there's plenty in that sort of way. And I think physio also just tends to treat health. I think that's the other thing I've, in a very general sort of way, I've realised that physio is, you know, helping people get healthier. Medicine tends to often be treating people that are sick. Um, and I think the models of what we're trying to achieve are somewhat different. They're not, they're not, you know, in the same direction with regards to that. So just 
Okay, so you had this blind physio. Was it out? Was it sort of outpatients, or what sort of physio were you actually seeing? Oh, he was seeing. Uh, it was a very rural area of the UK, and uh, and so he was seeing just run of the mill patients who are coming in with various conditions. The one that stands out to me was a, a lady who had a, a sco- young lady with scoliosis, and the, this guy was doing some some treatment for this lady, and he was clearly using manual therapy, hands-on treatments, and she was uh, very appreciative of the, the work he was doing. I had no idea at the time what he was doing or, or why, but it seemed to be something that was um, really helpful and really stimulating to understand how we could help people in such a way. So that's what persuaded me to go to to apply for physio school. Okay. And once you had, was there anything significant that happened during the physio training for yourself? Um, yeah, I had some great teachers. I was really lucky to to have two outstanding um, teachers in the area of manual therapy, which was what I was interested in. And these guys were, you know, at, at the time, probably leaders in their field and continue to be for many years afterwards. And in fact, uh, one of the teachers, Robbie Blake, is still is still teaching, and he's into his 80s. And uh, so these two guys really inspired me to learn more about manual therapy and to work and to try and specialize in that field. I had great other teachers as well. There were some, some fantastic uh, teachers, but these two particularly stood out. Now, if you look at what they taught me all those years ago, it was pretty rudimentary manual therapy, but it was um, it was the start for me of a long learning journey, and, and I think uh, I'm very grateful for the for the knowledge that they provided and the um, the motivation that they provided. Yeah, yeah. And how did your career then sort of develop over those first five or ten years once you graduated from Sheffield? Oh. Um, I went to, to work in London. Um, my wife Liz is a physio as well, and she um, she got a job in, in London. So I went along as well and, and uh, looked around for some jobs. Um, I was uh, uh, very keen to find a job that was specializing in, in some sort of manual therapy. And so I went to St. Stephen's Hospital, it was called. It's now the, the Chelsea and Westminster, a very posh um, hospital at the moment now. But at the time, it was an old workhouse. And uh, it was a hospital that was, that was made out of this old workhouse. So it was a bit run down, but it had some fantastic teachers of physiotherapy there and a fantastic physio department. So I went along and worked with Peter Wells, who was one of the leading figures in manual therapy in the UK at that time and, and many other teachers as well in the physio department. So I learned a lot from, from that and really helped to stimulate my my career. And while I was there, I met some people who had um, who'd been to Perth to study the postgraduate manual therapy program um, that was set up by Brian Edwards here in Perth. And so I, I saw them on a weekend course. They taught a two-day combined movement weekend course, uh, Kate Sheehy and Chris Barrett, and uh, they were very stimulating to me. I thought these guys were were far away from everyone else that I'd seen. And I, and I wanted to know where they'd studied and I wanted to learn what, they did, what, uh, what they'd learned. And so I asked them and they told me, oh, Perth's the place to go to. So that's why I came to Perth. So that took right. me about five years, to, five years to work in the NHS in London before I, um, I got onto these guys. And actually I applied for a place, but at that time it was very difficult to get a an international place there were only three people in a year who were given places uh, out of a total of 12 
so I didn't get a place on the first year. But the second year I applied, I, I got a place, luckily, and um, that's why I'm here now. And did so you once you'd accepted that position, you came out and started the postgrad minute. So I guess Liz came with you as well at that stage. She resigned and moved out. No, she stayed at home. She stayed in London. She had a good job in uh, in the hospital system in in London. So uh, she stayed for um, while I was in Perth. And then I went back to to London and worked for another year in in um, in outpatient departments, various outpatients in uh, in London. And she decided she wanted to do the program. I think I must have talked it up quite a bit. And so we both came out together in uh, that was when was that 1993 so she did the program in 93 and you would have come out and that's did you is that when you started working with bob at south perth uh, so yeah, Bob was the lecturer on the program. I was uh, lucky; he was his, his first year that he started teaching the postgraduate course, which is now a master's in musculoskeletal physiotherapy at Curtin University. It was his first year, and we had some great, um, great fellow students. Peter O'Sullivan was one of my fellow students, and uh, as you can see. He's gone on to very great things. Um, so Peter, I, and all the other students on the course were really stimulated by some of these great teachers. Kim Robinson was also my teacher, Mark Oliver. They're very good teachers and clinicians in, in their own right, and and Bob. So it was a fantastic year for me. He was a tremendous clinician, tremendous manual therapist, uh, but also a very um, somebody who's got a very open mind, who's willing to to look and see why things happen and then try to understand them in a deeper way. And, and that's something I really enjoyed and learned a lot from him. Yeah. Did you find that you preferred, were you sort of teaching at that stage or was it all clinical work for you? Um, no, that was all clinical work for me. When I, when I went back after the mass, after the um, manual therapy program, I did that in 1990. I went to London and um, and we learned some manual therapy techniques that which uh, were developed by Brian Mulligan. So when I went back to London, nobody really heard about these manual therapy techniques. So I started to teach them with a colleague of mine, Linda Exelby. She's um, she's retired now, but we started teaching these courses and we ran a one day course on the Mulligan concepts. It's teaching the techniques that we'd learned from Brian Mulligan in Perth, and you know these courses were went down really well, and we ended up doing heaps of them. I think we did fifteen in the first year, and then gradually we increased them to two days because the number of techniques seemed to expand all the time, and then it went on from there. So I started teaching in 1991, probably a little bit too soon to be honest after just learning about the techniques but they were they were so popular people wanted to learn about them and found them so useful in their clinical practice that we 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 decided to run all these programs and then i came back to to perth in 1993 with liz and it took me a few years to gradually start teaching again but we, we ran a a a weekend course in 1993 with Kim Robinson and Peter O'Sullivan. We ran a weekend course on the lumbar spine, trying to give people some ideas about how manual therapy was was changing, and and that's where we developed Manual Concepts, which is the teaching company I share with Kim Robinson, my colleague. And uh, but it started with that course with Peter O'Sullivan in 1993, so it's uh, it's, it's been going a long time now. Yeah, yeah. 
And I guess because you've also gone ahead and not only developed manual concepts, but you've fitted in between a few there, you sort of your specialization and your PhD as well. Looking at your specialization, what did you learn from that process? When I, when I did it, it wasn't so much a, of the program that we have now. Now we have a two-year mentoring program, which is uh, really valuable. It's very uh, intensive, lots of learning, lots of, of um, t- tools to help you develop your practice and your knowledge and your uh, clinical reasoning and so on and, and the evidence base that you understand. But when I did it, we uh, could elect to go straight to take the the exam, and it was for people with some experience. So you you were offered that if you had a had a a, a good background that you could say, well, look, I've I've done this work before. I've been teaching. I've done this research. So based on that, they allowed you to go straight to the exam. Um, so it was a, a challenge to go to do that straight away. And your PhD did that follow after your specialization um no i did it wasn't afterwards um um i can't remember <laughs> it's oh yeah i did that afterwards yeah. i lose track of where the phd took a few years as well i probably started the phd at the time that i i think just before i did, did my specialization um as as far as i remember now that's um, this way it goes probably around the same time um but I'd, I'd done my master's by thesis and enjoyed that. That was a pure research master's. And, uh, and at the time I was doing that with Peter O'Sullivan as well. We, we both went into it at the same time and Peter went on to convert his master's to a PhD. And uh, I'd had enough of, of doing that. I had a young family and it was just all a bit too much for me. So I finished at the master's and then had a break for a few years and then decided to go back to the PhD. And so went back and, and started again. Um, that, so, that was, so I really enjoyed that. That's probably uh, one of the most fulfilling things that I think I've done. Uh, PhD is a very valuable life lesson. If anybody's thinking about doing it, I definitely recommend it. Uh, as long as you've got good supervisors and you've got a good plan and you enjoy that kind of challenge, can be all consuming but for me it was a really valuable uh, lesson so I really enjoyed that and what was your topic in your PhD thesis um, so I started uh, I looked at cervicogenic headache aspects of examination whether the examination that we use is reliable particularly manual diagnosis for identifying the impaired levels in the neck that could be causing the, the patient's headache um, so, you know, we use uh, manual examination tests looking for segmental movement. And in particular, the flexion rotation test is um, one test that I've done a lot of research on. So it was my intention to use that, that research that I'd done in the past as part of my PhD. Um, but I wasn't allowed to use that, so I had to start again. So I did a, a whole new series of studies looking at manual diagnosis and the flexion rotation test and looking at its diagnostic accuracy, reliability, um, and, and change over time. And that's, that's, what I, um, that's what I focused on. And I've done more studies since then, but um, I had a series of studies looking at that validity, really, and the diagnostic accuracy. 
And how would you recommend clinicians apply that knowledge that you've learnt, say, into clinical practice? Like what's the practical application of what you learnt from your thesis? Well, we know that um, the upper cervical spine is capable of causing referred pain into the head. But we also know that if you've got a migraine, you often get neck pain. So there's a lot of people with headache out there in the general population, but they they, they suffer from neck pain and they don't really know what's the cause of their headache. They, it can be a very disabling condition, headache. So a lot of people try to seek various people's help to see if they can help their headache. And if they've got neck pain with headache, they often think that there may be something wrong with their neck which might be causing their, their headache. So they go along to see a, a physio or a, um, a doctor perhaps or a chiropractor and um, maybe with these tests we can be a little bit more helpful in understanding whether the cervical spine is a component of the patient's headache, not just on its own, but together with other clinical tests that we can use. So I think these tests can be helpful as part of the clinical examination to identify whether the neck is a component of the patient's headache or not. And now that you've, I mean, you've done your PhD and you've gone on, you've actually done some more research as well. How are you involved in the research area now? Um, I tend to, I don't, don't tend to do the actual physical research myself anymore. Um, so I just get asked by various people around the world if I can help them uh, to develop a research idea and uh, then to help them to, to write a proposal, to, to um, um, analyze the results perhaps, or to write a paper afterwards. So I've got some, I'm helping various people around the world here in Satput in India, I'm supervising his PhD at the moment, and he's looking at the efficacy of the Mulligan approach for treatment of headache. And we've written a, a few papers together where we've uh, collaborated on developing a research proposal and then going. He's, he's collected the data in his hospital, and then I've helped him to analyze these and do the stats and then write the paper afterwards. So that's been very fruitful. But other groups as well, um, with Dr. Benjamin Hidalgo in Belgium, um, Dr. Harry von Pickards in, in Germany, Axel Schaefer in Germany, um, Francis Grondin in Reunion Island of all places. Um, lots of people <laughs> around the world have asked me to help them with their research. So at the moment, I'm, I feel like I'm spinning plates uh, in the air and, and there's all these plates up in the air and I have to keep going around to try to keep them up because there's so many different um, projects on the go. I think I'll take on too much. Um, I'm just doing a, helping another guy with his PhD in, in uh, Brazil, Rafael Besk. He's, um, he's doing a, a study on the mulligan concept, looking at the efficacy of adding mulligan treatment techniques for people with rotator cuff-related shoulder pain on top of exercise. So I've got all these different varied groups that I have been asked to help with. I like doing it because it's stimulating. I learn a lot from doing it. And I think it also helps our profession to move forwards. So with all that that is happening, can you paint your average day, like when you get up in the morning and before you go to bed, in regards to your physio profession, how do you allocate your time and what do you tend to find yourself doing? Depends which, which plate is falling. You, you focus on the plate that's falling and then you uh, keep that spinning a little bit faster. Then you've got time to look around and see which other plate is on its way down. But now normally I get up in the morning and, and have a look at my emails and decide which one has to be um, 
has to be focused on. Um, I, I'm trying to run a business with manual concepts, so we get quite a lot of uh, emails about uh, people asking about courses. When can they start again? Face-to-face -face courses. When they can, can they come to Australia to study on on the program? Um, we've also set up an online course for low back pain, which we which also requires quite a lot of email and a lot of uh, people to 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 give some information about the program. But I also have the, these guys who contact me about the research that we're doing and perhaps they've uh, got an urgent question about the proposal or maybe they've submitted a paper and you've got to respond to the, the reviewers' comments and, and all these different things. So email takes mm -hmm. a lot of time. We're also preparing for further courses to go online because um, as, as everyone knows in these COVID times we can't do face-to-face -face courses at the moment uh, with uh, for me to go overseas to teach it anymore that's not possible the Australian government won't allow us to leave Australia and at the same time we are not allowed to have overseas students come to Curtin for our course which we used to have uh, sometimes three times a year so my work is, uh, has completely stopped at the moment, apart from the uh, online courses, the, the research and, uh, and the, uh, the other aspects. So it's, it's been a big change for the way that I'm, I'm working. I mean, I'm towards the end of my career anyway, so it's not so important for me, but uh, it, I know that it's quite devastating for a lot of people out there who, where COVID has, has caused them to dramatically change their, their work. So I have a, quite a varied day. I can I can do whatever I want. If I'm focusing on a research paper, I can focus on that. If I'm trying to prepare this online course, I can focus on that. Um, or if I have to look at some um, other work-related issues, I can focus on that. Do you find that like with the emails, you can literally sit there for hours and hours and hours and just, I call emails almost scratch itches. You just got to scratch them to get them done. But do you to put aside that block of time to sit down and either record something or edit something in regards to your course? It, it, it takes a lot of discipline, doesn't it, to block out a, a chunk of three or four hours just to nut down and do that particular aspect? It does. And uh, when you're writing a, um, a course, on, online, you might be focusing on one particular slide where you're talking about the evidence base for the use of uh, manual examination technique. Um, and then you start looking in the literature and you, you get a little bit sidetracked and it ends up taking you hours and hours and hours to write one slide. And when you know that you've, you've got to try and get it all done, so it can be a little bit challenging, but also interesting because you learn a lot by by that process. Uh, I think it's uh, very valuable for 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 me to forces me to learn a lot. Yes, are you still treating clients? No, I don't um, don't see patients anymore. I mean, we used to when we were on courses. We used to uh, in, have people uh, with. Uh, back pain or shoulder pain and we used to treat them and examine them in front of the, of the group but that hasn't happened since March this year so um, and and I'm, I'm not in a clinic anymore we I have done some supervision during for the specialization program as well and helped people with patients on that program but um, but it's a very small part now yeah do you miss that client contact um, not, not so much because I mean I've been doing it for a long time since um, now 
coming up to um, can't even think about it since I started physiotherapy. It's it's uh, it's um, what is it forty years? That's nearly so. It's it's uh, it's a long time. But I do think sometimes that with new information, I'd like to give some of this new information a go with the with the patients to see how they really. Uh, respond to innovations in physiotherapy practice. I think that would be that, that's quite interesting to see. So, in, in some ways, I, I do miss that. Uh, but I, I get the stimulation from working with people who are treating patients and doing research with them. So, I think that's very interesting for me. That's the most interesting and challenging. Yeah. And given that COVID has been such a disruptive force in the face-to-face world and in education as well as treating patients, how do you see or what do you see manual concepts doing going forward? Yeah, well, that's uh, that's the challenge at the moment, isn't it? How, what, what's going to change? I, I'm hanging out for when the Australian government is going to um, start vaccinating people. I'll be the first person in the queue if, if I'm allowed to to have a vaccination so that to allow me to to start to teach again face-to-face. I think, um, you know, what I teach manual therapy is, is very much a, a hands-on skill. You can do some elements online and we can learn about the, the application of some of this online, but mostly it's, it's, a, it's a hands-on skill. And I'd like to start doing that again. I'd like to travel overseas to, to resume the courses that we used to run in various countries. Um, but I don't know when that's going to change. The uh, the government's saying that it's probably not till March that they're going to make another decision about this. But I think it'll be a long time after that before we can start to, to travel again and before students can come to Perth to study at um, one of our courses for sure. Yeah, okay. So I think maybe contact more concepts is, uh, is 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 going on online as um, as a alternative to give people some way of learning about manual therapy and then who knows from there so that almost brings up the next question which is can you recount a moment or period in your career when you thought you might want to stop being a physio um i've often had uh, times when i think oh what am i doing here is this something i really want to do i, I can remember when i first started work in a teaching hospital in london and and i was um told by my senior physiotherapist at the time she said do you really think that this is the right career choice for you and I was absolutely stunned by this and I thought to myself oh what am I doing wrong here have I am I giving people the wrong impression about my my enthusiasm I've always been very enthusiastic about my profession but uh, clearly some people didn't think that I was Um, and I think there have been times low points in in your career where you think oh you know, I, I don't, I'm not enjoying this job. I'm not enjoying these types of patients that I'm seeing or this is uh, very boring what I'm doing. So I think everyone goes through those, those periods. But in the whole, I, I, you know, I've stuck with physiotherapy for a long time and, and I think it's been a good career choice. I've done some great things, worked with some great people. But um, I think you... With any job, you're going to get periods where you question whether you're doing the right thing, and some people will flick between different professions. But I think if you stick at what you're doing and try to change in some way, I'm lucky in, in that I have really three different arms of, um, of work over the years, working with patients, working with research and teaching. So I've been able to uh, sort of modify those to suit me as I, as I wanted to. 
Would, would you say there was something that pulled you back towards physio, those low moments? Um, I'm not sure there's really anything that's drawn me back. I think, uh, I think always trying to develop new ideas with the research has really been stimulating for me. That's been uh, – and trying to push – my um, knowledge further by first of all uh, doing a, a master's and as I, I mentioned before uh, by research that took me a few years to do so that was quite interesting um, and pretty much I've been largely self-taught in, in terms of research because uh, the, the, at the time that I was doing these these further studies people really didn't have much of an idea about research and, and not that they could teach uh, anything to me because I, you just didn't get that formal teaching in it. Um, so it's something that I've learned by osmosis, I think, over the time. Um, and then after that, I, I started to think about doing further studies and I did some more research after my master's and then that led me to, to my PhD. So I think the, all these challenges help you to move along. I think if I was staying in the same job as I was doing with some small steps in terms of progression, I, I probably wouldn't have been so uh, interested in the career. But having to um, do all these different postgraduate studies, I think, helps you. I really uh, yeah. uh, encourage people to do that. Yeah. And can you identify three specific moments in your professional life that stand out for you? I'm certainly going to do the, the, the manual therapy program at Curtin was the highlight of my my career, probably learning from people like Bob Elvey, um, outstanding clinician, and people, other people, Max Usman, and so many tremendous teachers at the time. Uh, that that was one of the first highlight of my career, and probably uh, doing my PhD was a was another highlight. Um, probably also doing at the specialization exam and passing that knowing that you're you're at a sufficient standard for your your colleagues to recognize that you're at that standard i think that's it's a, a highlight as well and if you were able to jump in a time machine and zip back to your younger self at sheffield and just graduating is there any advice that you've learned that you'd like to pass on to yourself at that point in your starting career um, I think I'd encourage myself to, to go into postgraduate study more quickly, I think. Uh, I think it took me a few years to, to get into that. Um, I would encourage myself to, to push the boundaries, try and uh, learn as much as you can and do as much formal study as you can and learn as much as you can from your, your colleagues. And we, we, we sometimes, I think, we get into a, to work and it becomes a little bit mundane. So I think we need to, to be pushed and challenged. And I, I encourage myself to, to do that more. And zipping forward the other way, five years, ten years down the track, where do you see the profession of physio at that point in time? Um, to be honest, I'm not that hopeful for uh, the physiotherapy career that I know, that, that I have 
been working with over the years. Uh, what the physiotherapy profession is going through some radical changes, as I'm sure everyone knows, particularly with respect to hands-on physical treatments. That's what drew me to working as a physio. It's it's, and it's what has really stimulated me over the years. And clearly, that that has changed due to the evidence. Um, so we know that you know you, you can't just manipulate somebody's back and expect that all people with back pain are going to get better as a result of that. So we know that, that there's a big challenge to helping people with musculoskeletal disorders. But that's that's a good thing. You know, it makes our, our job very stimulating because we, we have to change. But the, the type of profession, I think, what we're going to see in 10 years' time is going to be very different to the one that I've been working as a physio with over all these years. So um, that's, to me, maybe giving me an indicator that it's a good time to bow out of the physiotherapy profession and let other younger, new new blood to take on the, the reins and to move the profession forwards. Can you do it or do you have an idea what it might look like? Like you've, it sounds like you've got some indication. I mean, we're not talking just about the biopsychosocial model here. You're actually you're indicating something else. Um, no, I think um, I, I, I really don't know how the profession is going to change. Uh, uh, There's a, a great book by Nichols, who is, I think it's called The End of Physiotherapy. Um, it's, it's, if you're a, a physio just starting your careers, I recommend reading some of the, so that book um, because it's, it's uh, you know, you, you've invested a lot of time and money and effort into a, a career and you want to try and see what, how that's going to pan out. So you want to shape your career to make sure that you're, you fit in with that, that future. For me, I, I probably don't fit in so well with that uh, future practice. I think that um, it will be a much less hands-on. It'll be a lot more um, uh, kind of um, almost acting as a psychologist, I think, in many ways. And uh, that's not something that's particularly interest me so I, I don't think it's uh, something for me to to continue with um, I will continue to work and do research to understand how manual therapy might fit in future practice and, and I'm sure that it will have a place but I think there are many other ways that we can also focus on to to help people so I think that's going to change quite dramatically over the next few years and all the years, if you, if you look at it, at um, the the teaching at an undergraduate level, I think it, it's changing very rapidly now. That kind of surprises me, I guess, in two ways. One is that is that change being forced upon the profession externally by funding bodies, or is that being forced on it by patients' perception? Because I don't think it's the latter one, like. Manual therapy, whether it be massage or, you know, manipulation, it's been around since the dawn of time. And to me, when you lay your hands on a person, if people are interested in this, I think Julie Day really explained it quite well in the podcast that we put out a couple of weeks ago, where she said there's probably a lot more to the laying on of hands than just the manual therapy. 
And even she sort of said she'd read an article by a psychology journal saying, or just sort of identifying this is a very important thing that we need to be doing. And that sort of brought a bit of a wry smile to both of our faces because we are thinking, well, here's this, here's this tension within the physio profession that we need to sit back and talk more and hands on less. And there's a psychologist profession saying, oh, look, we need to lay the hands on a bit more because there's such a healing power in that process. And to me, it's kind of like, well, the manual therapy, the the respect that you show somebody when you do put your hands on them and the benefit that they get in many ways other than just the manual therapy means to me that if, if physios, which is basically physical therapy, if, if we don't do it as a profession, then it's not going to, the demand is not going to diminish. It's just that we're going to miss out on utilizing what I think is a very powerful skill and other people will pick up that baton with relish because it is such an effective tool to help people move from one point in their life to another through a positive process of whether you want to call it healing or health or well-being. It, to me, it would be just such a shame for a physical therapist to put away what to me seems to be their, their core skill. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's something that we've um, pushed or has been part of um, what I've been teaching for for many years. But I think we're, we're also influenced, as, as you say, by uh, funding. Um, so if you, if you look, for, for example, in the UK, where you know, if, you, if you have a, a session with a physiotherapist in the National Health Service, you might be lucky to have one treatment session and you've been on a waiting list to have that one treatment session for quite some time. I know it varies a lot and some people have much better uh, flexibility in that, that approach. But what are you going to do with one session? If you, you're not going to do any kind of hands-on treatments for sure. Even if perhaps if you've got two or three sessions, you might not even consider that. So I think it is partly um, directed by funding. Whereas when I first graduated as a physio in the UK all those years ago, you you had much greater time to spend with your patient, um, which was abused by some people, I know for sure, and people were over-treated. And manual therapy then got a, a, a bad name, I think, because of that. And we also go through these uh, these uh, kind of eras in physiotherapy where when I first graduated, it was all about hands-on manual therapy mobilization of the articular system. Maitland and Kaltenborn were at the fore, and these were the, the drivers for physiotherapy treatment. And then we entered the, the neural mobilization era. David Butler and Bob Elvey and people like that, Michael Shecklock, Helped, to un- helped us to understand about that kind of problem. And so we all moved towards that. Then we came to the stabilization era where we learned about multifidus and transverse abdominis. And these were the things that you did with your patient and forget about mobilizing them, just stabilize them. So we, I think we go through these mm-hmm. eras. And, and when we go into a new area, as we have been doing for a few years, the psychosocial era, then we tend to poo-poo the, the techniques of the past and the knowledge of the past and we denigrate those people that that uh, use those that approach. So I think we're our own worst enemy in some ways in that we're 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 kind of in this peak and trough where we we go to something new. We're looking for the holy grail. We're always wanting something that's new and special to treat patients. And when something new comes along we discard the past. 
And, uh, you know, there's a lot on social media now. If you look on social media, if you practice hands-on manual therapy, you're, you're a dinosaur, you're an idiot, you're, you're just poking and prodding people. And, um, you know, that's, that's very powerful messages that come out to new graduate physiotherapists. And if you, if you hear these social media gurus who've got huge following, then they must be right. They've got this huge following, so they're right. Everyone else is wrong. Manual therapy is rubbish or uh, any other kind of treatments that you used in the past is rubbish and we have to go on to something new. Um, so I think it's, it's partly that. It's, it's partly funding. Um, you know, so we, we, we are in a period of change for sure. It's been a pleasure sharing your professional journey today, Toby. You've made a solid personal contribution to our current body of knowledge through your thoughts, education, mentorship and research. Thank you so much for joining us on Physio Plus 10 today. I really appreciate the time to, to talk to everyone. And uh, so uh, I, I wish everyone the best of luck, and especially in these COVID times. And hopefully we can have a new normal that continues to build on the past and we don't discard manual therapy. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Physio Plus 10, in which I trust you gained some valuable insights. It'd be awesome if you could leave your two cents worth as a review or rating of this podcast. And I look forward to sharing the story of another trailblazing physiotherapist with you in two weeks' time. Stay safe. Bye for now.